I can make a list of reasons why it is uh, such a joy uh, to be with you this morning and to engage my heart with yours in the worship of God. But one of those several reasons would be the delight of singing psalms. It is um, not shocking, but it is deeply disappointing to my own soul as a Christian believer uh, to be aware of the number of churches today who would wish to take um, the label of being reformed and neglect the singing of the psalms, that is, the songs that God has put in his word for us to sing. And uh, to be in a place where the psalms are not neglected is a great joy uh, to my believing heart. Would you turn with me, please, uh, to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians, the second chapter. And please follow as I read verses 1 through 10. We have already read part of this passage together, but let us again hear God's word. And um, I fail to ask Pastor Vance what the dominant Bible version is here at your congregation, in your congregation. Uh, I believe it is the New King James. At least one Vance had the New King James on the front pew this morning. <clears throat> and um, I have come to do most of my study and preaching from the ESV. And uh, so there may be some slight variation in the wording of what I will read and what you're looking at this morning. Let us read and hear God's word. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Passions not just of the body, but of the mind. We're living in a sex-saturated age, so there are many who are pursuing passions of the flesh, but there are some who avoid those passions but pursue passions of the mind. And we were like the rest of mankind, children of wrath. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, 
so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Our focus this morning is going to be verses 8 to 10, but I wish to ask a question, and the question is this, that is before we come to these verses, my question is this, is the message of the Bible simple and relatively easy to understand, or is the Bible complicated, perplexing, and sometimes seemingly almost confusing? I'll repeat the question. Is the message of the Bible simple and easy to understand, or is the Bible complicated, perplexing, and sometimes appearing almost confusing? And I wish to answer the question. Some parts of the Bible are a bit complicated, some parts of the Bible are perplexing, and some parts of the Bible lead me to scratch my brain and say, what does that mean? It wasn't too long ago that my daily reading had me at the end of the book of Ezekiel. And yes, I have Patrick Fairbairn's commentary on Ezekiel, but I have no intention of ever preaching a series of sermons on the closing chapters of the book of Ezekiel. Just read them sometime carefully for yourself. Chapters 40 to 48. I've never tried to preach on those chapters, and I have no intentions of uh, doing so uh, in uh, the brief period of my life that remains. Yes, some things in the Bible are demanding. They are not so simple that a little child can understand them. There are parts of the Bible that need gifted and godly men to carefully explain the grammar and to carefully explain the specific meaning of words. But, my friends, the parts of the Bible that are most important for us to understand, the parts that tell us clearly who we are, who God is, and what God has done to rescue us from ourselves and from our sins and from a real devil, those most important parts of the Bible are written down with a clarity, with specifics, with appealing, even attractive words that encourage us to believe. You know, if you ask the question, can you, can you live the Christian life and not have a Bible? Well, that's an important question. But can you begin the Christian life? Can someone come to believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and embrace him by faith and not even know that there is such a thing as a Bible? And the answer is yes. Someone can, in the goodness and grace of God, be brought into a sphere of connections and relationships and can have 
uh, the wonderful message about God being pleased to look on this sinful world and to have a plan and a purpose to rescue people like me and you, and that God sent his own son into the world to do for us what we can never do for ourselves, and if we trust in him, if we believe in him, we will be saved. And the Christian life can begin with a relatively limited amount of information, believed in the heart, and someone beyond the way to heaven. Now, genuine faith, of course, just doesn't have a beginning point. Genuine faith is persevering faith. We not only believed in Jesus, we must continue to believe in Jesus and continue to hold on to him until we see him face to face. And so we do need more information to live out a persevering faith. But all the marvelous simplicity and clarity of the gospel when we get started. Now, there are three lines of thought that I want to set before you in considering verses 8 to 10. And here are the three lines of thought. A marvelous fact stated, that marvelous fact explained, and that marvelous fact expanded. So first of all then, we have a marvelous fact stated in verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Now, when the Apostle Paul penned what we call Ephesians, he was not a polemicist. Don't think of Paul as engaging in polemics when you begin to read the book of Ephesians. He does that in Galatians. I'm bold enough to say don't even think of Paul necessarily as a systematic theologian when you begin to read Ephesians, as Paul is when he writes what we call the book of Romans. In fact, the word justify or the word justification is not used in Ephesians. Those dominant words in Galatians and Romans you will not even find in this part of our New Testament. No, Paul is not a polemicist when he's writing Ephesians. He's not necessarily a systematic theologian. I want to tell you, my friends, he's a worshiper. He's engaged in worship. And the way that is so clearly advertised is that what we have in our Bibles as Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, is one sentence in the Greek New Testament. Now, any of you young people, do, do students still diagram sentences? Do you even know what it is to diagram a sentence? You who are younger. Some, yes. Well... I remember having to diagram sentences. I'd like to see someone diagram Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. I'm sure it would be impressive. It's one rather complicated sentence. Why? Because Paul is gushing out worship when he begins Ephesians. It really is a gush of praise and adoration to God and the grace of God that you have that begins this letter. 
And some of that gushiness, if I could coin that word, continues here in chapter 2. For instance, look at verses 5 and 6. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together, together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. Now the ESV has that set off by itself. By, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. Uh, what's going on here? Well, well the, the apostle is again r- rushing ahead in, in his soul as a worshiper and, and, he, and he, in the, the thrill of that, sticks in, by grace you've been saved. And then he finishes his line of thought And then in verse 8, he comes back to, by grace you've been saved. Now, Paul, again, picks up that same thought in verse 8a. Look at it, please. For by grace you have been saved. The verb tense is significant here. Paul uses a perfect passive verb. And I'll tell you what that means if you don't already know what it means. The perfect tense points to something that has been completed in the past, but it's continuing into the present. So when Paul says, for by grace you have been saved, he means you have really been saved, and something is continuing as a result of that. And the passive voice indicates that this is entirely what God has done. By grace, you have been saved. How, how did you come to be saved? Because of what God has done. It, it, this is exclusively his work. Well, Paul, what about the fruits of, of God's saving grace? What are the practical results of being saved? Paul says, wait a minute, I'm going to come to that. I'm going to get to that. But right now, I just want to underscore the fact that it is by grace that you have been saved. Now, we often use the word grace as a synonym for, for love or for mercy, and, and that's not wrong. But I'm persuaded that the word grace is a work, pardon me, it's a, it's a word of divine action. God is moving, he's, he, he's working actively as he shows his grace. It, it isn't simply Uh, an attribute of God that we admire. No, it's God coming onto the scene of this fallen world. It's God acting to come into the needy, sinful lives of the people that he's going to save. Let me give you one example of the way Paul uses the word grace. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. That's what he writes in Titus. The grace of God has appeared, It's moving. It's it's accomplishing things. Grace is not a vague blanket of spirituality that passes over us as we engage in meditation. Grace is God coming into this world, coming into our lives, and snatching us out of our sin, and taking us out of the realm of, of judgment, and bringing us to know him. So this marvelous fact stated begins with grace. But then Paul says, through faith. 
Now, is Paul giving a small qualification um, to grace? In other words, is he saying, by grace you've been saved, and that takes care of 98% of your spiritual need, but you've got to add something, you've got to add 2% by believing. I mean, what do you say to someone with whom you're seeking to communicate the gospel, and I, and I hope you have some experience in that uh, as a student, in, in your workplace, uh, you're, you're, you're talking to people, you're getting to know people, and, 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 and you wait for what appears to be an open door to, to begin to communicate something of the gospel. And, and you say to your work associate, my friend, it's not because of what you do. It's only because of what Christ has done. We're saved by God's grace, not because of anything we do. And then you begin to talk to this person about believing in Jesus. What if the person says, now wait a minute. You know, you, you Christians, you, you come around with all of your haughtiness and, you know, your opinions, you, you, you think you know so much about God and what other people need. You, you, you just said, it's not because of what I do, and now you tell me I have to believe. Now, now make up your mind. Which, is, is it really only what God has done, or, or do, I have to, do I have to do something? I have to believe. Can't you imagine a conversation like that with some people? Well, this question is wonderfully answered by a Presbyterian theologian named John Murray. Is it, is it okay if I read a John Murray quote in this Presbyterian congregation? <laughs> Listen to Professor Murray in talking about faith in his redemption accomplished and applied. The specific character of faith is that it looks away from itself and finds its whole interest and object in Christ. He is the absorbing preoccupation of faith. Faith is not a work, a little teeny, teeny work, that we do in order to get inside the sphere of God's saving activity? Faith, faith is the empty hand that is caused to reach out and to receive what God offers and what he's done in Christ. It isn't just one little thing that we do. It's God graciously, mercifully, bestowing upon us what we simply receive. The marvelous fact stated, by grace you have been saved through faith. Now this marvelous fact, secondly, is explained. Verse 8b and verse 9, look at it again, please. And this, this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. 
One could easily conclude that Paul's stated marvelous fact is more than sufficient to rule out human effort or merit. But the apostle knows how slow some of us are to learn grace alone, and so he spells it out more clearly. And there are two points of explanation that are important in looking at verse 8b. Number one, Ephesians 2, 8b is not teaching, listen carefully, it is not teaching that faith is the gift of God. That is not the explicit teaching of the text. It can be argued persuasively that genuine faith in Christ really is the gift of God, but not from this text. There are statements in the New Testament that clearly communicate the fact that faith is something God works in us. Faith is indeed something that God imparts to us by his grace. For instance, Philippians 1.29, For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ, not only that you believe, but also that you suffer for him. So is genuine faith the gift of God? Yes, but that is not the point that Paul is making in this text. Secondly, verse 8b puts forward God's gift. Look at it. Not your own, not your own doing, it is God's gift. What, what, what is the gift of God? It's all that God does in saving us in Christ. You're saved through what God has done, not what you do. It's God's gift. The emphasis is not salvation is a gift. The emphasis is our being saved is God's gift. And then Paul's explanation continues in verse 9. Look at it. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It's because what God has done in Christ, this is all by faith and not by any merit of our own, but now Paul is going to make it more clear. Not a result of works. In, in other letters, Paul, especially in Romans and Galatians, will, will refer to the works of the law. In Galatians, he's obviously uh, concerned with Judaizers, and he has some concern for Judaizers and the larger expanse of Romans. And, and so Paul will often say, not by works of the law. But remember, my friends, the, the dominant constituency of the New Covenant community in, in Ephesus was not Jewish. This congregation was dominantly Gentiles. And yet, Paul, in writing to a church that was dominantly Gentile, he still has to say, it, it's, it's not something that enables us to boast. Why does he say so much about that? Why is he emphasizing that? Because he's aware of the universal tendency of the human heart to boast. Maybe the Jews became extra good at boasting. Maybe the Jews, through their culture and their religious background, and through them being a separate nation from all those Gentile dogs, Maybe they were particularly exposed to the dangers of boasting, but it's not unique to Jewish people. 
It's endemic to the human heart. Do you ever discover this in your own heart as a, as a Christian believer? Now, let me tell you how it happened to me recently. I am not on Facebook. I hope by the grace of God I never get on Facebook. You say, is Facebook bad? Most of the time. Now, I should, I should pause and say that I'm a technological klutz. I mean, I mean when, when, someone, when someone brought me uh, this microphone this morning, he first told me that there was one button I had to remember to, to switch. And then, he, and then he gave me the good news that I could go ahead and put it on now and it could be controlled from the back and I wouldn't have to worry about it. And, and I had this great moment of relief. I, I don't have to do anything that's technical. I don't even have to flip one little button on this thing that's now in, in the pocket of my, of my coat. But recently, my wife, my wife's on Facebook. And if every person on Facebook were as wise and as sensitive and sanctified as Julie Pizzino, I'm sure the world would be a better place. And recently my wife read me a quote, something that someone had put on Facebook. And I responded by saying, who, who said that? She said, a, a pastor. What kind of Reformed pastor? A Reformed Baptist pastor. Who, who is it? Randy, I'm not going to tell you who it is. <laughs> now, look, don't, don't, don't start analyzing this. I'm just telling you what goes on between two people who have been married 53 years, okay? You know what happened to me? I remembered that rather unwise, even, even nasty thing that, that a Reformed Baptist pastor had put on Facebook. It, it, it appeared to me to be nasty. And I found myself during the day beginning to feel really good about myself because I'm not on Facebook. My friends... The pride of the human heart has millions of ways to work and to show itself in our lives. We're all very good at boasting. I've come to have a fear of the dangers of Reformed theology because of the temptations of pride. I remember, I'm going, to, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about my early life, okay? I went to a little teeny fundamentalist Bible college. There were about a hundred students in the freshman class. And, uh, and this was a large class for that little Bible college. And the, and the smartest 
The smartest girl in the class was, was that girl named Julie that I just referred to a moment ago. And the smartest guy in the class, I'm going to use a pseudonym, I'm going to call him Sam. And, um, and Sam was a five-point Calvinist, convinced five-point Calvinist. And he started talking to me about Calvinism. And, and, and I, I, didn't, I didn't agree with that theology, and so I, I, I was in a real heated debate with, with Sam, and sometimes with, with, <laughs> with the girl named Julie. Uh, and uh, then I came to my first year of systematic theology, and the professor gave us an assignment for parallel reading, hundreds and hundreds of pages of parallel reading, and he gave us a list of, the of books to read for parallel reading. And I looked on that list and I saw the name Bettner. And I saw Hodge. And I saw Warfield. And in 90 seconds, I decided what I was going to read. I mean, he, the professor, offered those volumes to read. And I knew what I was going to read, and so I started reading Lorraine Bettner's The Reformed Doctrine of Predestination. I started reading Hodge's theology, and I started reading Warfield. And you know what happened to me, my friends? I realized these men were smart. Man, they were smart. Some of you thought that about Reformed theologians? Am I talking to someone that maybe came to this church who had never been exposed a great deal to Reformed theology, and you came here and you started learning Reformed theology? And, 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 and I saw some of the books out on the book table this morning. And you start to read godly men, yes, some of whom are brilliant. But it's only a small step to say, I must be smart. If I understand these guys who are so smart, I must be smart. My friend, the seed, the seed of pride, the seed of self-exaltation is so much in that kind of thought and sentiment that begins to turn in your heart, you better look on it like a deadly snake to be put to death. Oh, we are so prone to boasting. And so the apostle doesn't hesitate to underscore. It's, 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 not, it's not of works. It's not of works why? So that no one may boast. Boasting is excluded. That's Paul's burden here. So we have a marvelous fact stated, a marvelous fact explained, and then this marvelous fact is expanded. And note that verse 10 begins with the word for. Now, if Paul were concerned to say, yes, we're saved by grace, but remember, remember, we have to work after we're saved. If that was Paul's burden, the text would not begin with four. You see that? 
No, it's all of grace. It's not a result of our works. It's not to be the cause of boasting. Why? For, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And the Greek text has this, has this marvelous way of emphasizing a word by front-loading that word. I'm sure you've heard this before. You know, we, we emphasize a word by, uh, by inflection. You know, I, I can look outside and say, the sun is shining today, and, and, and I'm implying that maybe the sun will not be shining tomorrow. Or, or I, can, I can look outside and say, the trees are so beautiful. We emphasize words in our English language by inflection. Or if we're writing, maybe italicizing the word, or maybe underlining the word, if we're communicating uh, by, by written uh, methods. The Greek New Testament has this marvelous way of emphasizing a word by front-loading it, by putting that word first in the sentence. And the first word in verse 10 in the Greek text is God. <laughs> God's workmanship. God's workmanship. And we are his workmanship. The Greek word is poemi, and maybe it could be translated poem, but, but the word used in other sources is used only one other time by the Apostle Paul, and it's used to refer to creation, God made. God's making we are. He has made us. He has created us. Yes, the right language of creation. He has created us in Christ Jesus unto good works. God has ordained, he has planned, and it will be fulfilled, that the people he saves are going to demonstrate his grace even more by the good works which they reflect in their experience that God, by his grace, is creating, is energizing. It's his work. We are his workmanship. And we are created in Christ Jesus unto good works. And God has ordained that this happen. Now, my friends, what does that mean? It means that in our Christian lives, there will be good works. And what's our response to the good works that we see showing up in our lives? I'll tell you what it should be first and foremost. It should be to lead us to again bow down in humility and worship God. That he's displaying his grace and enabling us to walk in his ways. I didn't realize that Pastor Vance sometimes, usually, preaches until 11.15. And I came this morning thinking that I was going to have to stop at 11 o'clock. And it's 11 o'clock. But I want to close 
I want to close this morning Uh, I'm going to close this morning by telling you a true story about that man that I referred to a few moments ago, the man who was the most intelligent male in my little Bible college class, and and I called him Sam. I want to tell you a true story about what happened to this man. He graduated in, in my same class. I was called, I was 23 years old, I was called to pastor a small church up in Stanton. You know, you get on 81, just shoot up 81, and roughly 90 miles up 81, you come to Stanton. And, and the Lord sent me to pastor a, a small, independent Baptist church that had had multiple fights and fusses and splits, like independent Baptists are so good at. And, and truly, I, I mean this, there was all, that church, when I, when I began pastoring in 1970, it was either going to grow or die. And, and, in, and in the mercy of God, it grew. My dearest male friend named Gary Hendricks, he took off to Mebane, North Carolina, and pastored the same church for 49 and a half years. He started preaching in Mebane and never stopped until the Lord took him just over one year ago. But that guy, Sam, in our class, he came to the Roanoke Valley. He came to an independent Baptist church in the Roanoke Valley, and he, he bombed out. Now, it was a very difficult situation. It was a large independent Baptist church. It had an auditorium that would seat 400 people, and it had had fusses and fights and splits, And so he was preaching to about 50 people in an auditorium that would seat 400. That's very depressing. At least to most of us it would be depressing. And so he did that for about two years. And then he announced to all of us, we were friends, we were staying in close touch. He he announced to all of us that he was called to be a missionary pilot. He felt, he felt a burden to, to get into aviation for the sake of missions. And, and he was going to have to train to be a missionary pilot. And so he left the Roanoke Valley and he went out to Indiana. I think it was Indiana. But he gets out there and he has to find a way to support his family. He's got a wife and two boys. So he has to get a job. And he got a job with a national company and he started rising in that company. Promotion, promotion, promotion until he's the head of the national company in Dallas, Texas. And 
And it wasn't long before I get the sad news that he's become attractive, he's become attracted to a very young woman, and he's leaving his wife and his two boys for this younger, more attractive woman. And I, I heard the news, I got the news, about the time I met the Trice family, if I'm remembering correctly. And I, I got his phone number and, and I called him, I, I, I called him, I don't remember how I got a hold of him, but I got a hold of him in Dallas and I, and I said, Sam, would you let me, would you let me come see you? Could I, I I'll, I'll, I'll get on an airplane, I'll fly to Dallas as quickly as I can, I'll, I want to talk to you. I want to talk to you. He refused and he mocked me. He mocked me. And he carried through with his desire to divorce his wife, to leave his sons, and to marry a more attractive woman. About a year ago, I made an effort to find where he was living, and I, and I was able to at least identify the city, and I wrote him a letter, and I, I know this is getting rather long, but I'm almost done. I wrote him a letter and, and said, hey, I, I don't know, you know what you're thinking these days, I don't know what's going on in your life, but but I've been thinking about you again. I've, been, I've begun to pray for you again, and and, and it would it would be it would be so uh, so welcomed for me if 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 I could communicate. My letter came back unopened. It, it just came back, you know, returned to sender. But in all of this, I had gotten in contact again with his first wife. Found out where she lived. Got got a phone number for, and and I had I had begun uh, to occasionally talk to her on the phone, and and I asked her, did did Sam did Sam ever did he ever go back to church? And she said, Randy, I, I'm sorry to give you the answer to that. The only church that I know he ever attended was a Unitarian church, a Unitarian church. This is all true. The first Lord's Day of this year, it was January 2nd, I'm getting dressed to preach to your sister congregation in Daleville. The elders of Wellspring Presbyterian had asked me to come preach on the first Lord's Day of this year, and, and I'm getting dressed to go out on the north side of Roanoke and preach. And my phone rings. And I usually turn my cell phone off on Sunday mornings. I don't want to be distracted with phone calls, but I'd forgotten. I'd, I'd left it on. And the phone rings, and, and it's, it's, the man, it's the woman who had been the first wife of Sam. And she said, Randy, I'm, I'm really sorry to bother you on a Sunday morning. Um, 
And I have some really sad news. Sam died yesterday. He was hiking. He was hiking in the Smoky Mountains. And he went out on a trail all by himself. He had, some, he had, his, he had his wife and some friends. And he went out on this trail all by himself. And he slipped on this trail and fell down a steep bank and was killed. He was found dead. Now, you say, okay, Pastor Randy, you've taken all this time to tell a true story. What's the point? Well, here's the point I want to make. When I got that shattering news, when I, when I got the news that this man, this man who had really introduced me to the doctrines of grace, the, he, he was the man that had taken the Bible and had shown me from the Bible the teaching of divine election. He had taken the time to turn to verses. And he, and, and he was so intelligent. He, he, he persuasively convinced me that, that, that this thing called Calvinism is in the Bible. And now, he's dead. You want to know my response? I wanted to fall down on my knees and cry out, Oh God, oh God, thank you for keeping me by your grace. I've remained faithful to my wife. I've never, I have never, in any kind of behavior, been unfaithful to my dear wife. And we'll celebrate anniversary 54 come August. I believe I can say I've never wrongly touched another female. I can say that to the praise of God's grace. But my friends, it is in no way, it's in no way connected to any goodness in me. It's grace. Grace, grace, grace. Are you trusting in God's grace? Let me ask you this. Are you, even as a professing believer, are you toying with some temptation? You know that story I just told you about, about Sam. Do, do you think he just got out of bed one morning and said, I'm, I'm going to commit adultery. I'm going to have an affair with my secretary. Do, do you think he had been walking with the Lord faithfully with some sensitivity of conscience and, and had been reading his Bible and calling on the Lord? And then just suddenly, one morning, got out of bed and decided he was going to be immoral. No! He left off secret prayer. He tolerated a little temptation that showed itself and then gave it some encouragement. He had a conversation. He had a conversation with that young secretary that he didn't stop 
there was probably an agreement to get together, to get together over coffee and, and just talk. Am I talking, am I speaking to someone this morning who is slightly indulging an appealing temptation? My friend, I beg you, for the sake of Christ in your own soul, go to war with that temptation today. In your soul, declare war on it and start going to Jesus and say, Oh, Jesus, cleanse me of this and help me. I love what Spurgeon said. You know, I gave a John Murray quote. I'm going to be ecumenical and give a Spurgeon quote, all right? Spurgeon said, I strive every day to live as a saint. But in, in order to do so, I must always be coming to Christ as a sinner. And even if we can't say every day, we can say, I strive to live as a saint. I want to be holy. I want to be what God wants me to be. But in order to be holy, I must always be coming to Christ as a sinner. That's why we observe the Lord's table. So that we will remember what he did on the cross. Who could ever forget that? Who could ever forget the cross? Apparently the Apostle Paul knew that someone could, could forget the cross. And so he was led to institute in the life of the church that constant remembering of what he's done for us. Do we grow beyond the gospel? Yes. But do we ever grow apart from the gospel? No. No. Warren, what am I supposed to do now? All right. Let's pray. Oh, Father. Oh, Father, we thank you. We thank you that we find ourselves again today gathered with those who love you, who call on your name, who believe your word, who by their example call us to keep on following after Jesus our Lord. Thank you, Father, for making us part of your church and for bringing us again to the public means of grace in which we can so richly Enjoy and remember who you are, what we are by nature, and what you have done for us in Christ. Seal your mercies to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen.